You are listening to the What's the Proof podcast, where we seek to help doctors and other clinicians incorporate the best available evidence into their everyday clinical decision-making. The content of this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized medical advice. The views and opinions expressed are those of the host and guest, and no content on this podcast has been approved or sanctioned by Atrium Health. Welcome to today's episode of What's the Proof. I'm Bobby Scott, and with me today is Sandy Robertson and Don Cavanis. I got to start off by apologizing about the uh, length of time since our last episode was published. And what can I say? We got busy. This thing called life gets in the way, doesn't it, Dr. Scott? It does, yeah. But hopefully this episode is worth the wait. Um, We'll be talking about probiotics and some of the uses uh, for it and know that a lot of people probably have questions being asked of them by patients about whether they should take so. antibiotics. So I think so. Hopefully we can help uh, answer that a little bit uh, today. I thought it was going to be an easy subject. We don't pick the easy ones. We really do not. And I did not anticipate how many studies and, and how much controversy or non-controversy it was going to be with probiotics. That might be one reason why I kept delaying the deadline. I got a little overwhelmed with, with the data, Bobby. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. But um, I do want to mention uh, that we now have a Twitter account. Yes, uh, we you do. can find us at The Proof Podcast. So, The Proof Podcast. Um, if you, you know, have comments about the show, you have thoughts, questions, you know, please tweet us and we'd love to hear from you. We really would. We take feedback pretty well, I think. Yeah, in general, we in do. In general, we yeah. do. Yeah. Um, anyway, so. Sandy, this is an interesting topic. Why did we choose this one? Why don't you share a little it, bit about that? It is an interesting topic, and I will admit that we, when we don't know something, I think we're fairly good at admitting that we do not know. In this particular case, I was reviewing the in-training questions that our residents from their um, last exam, and specifically looking at the questions that more than 50% of our residents missed. And then I would copy those, and then we're doing that as part of our training for our conference series. One of the questions was in regard to probiotics. And what really caught my eye was they used the word, you know, what is the evidence, evidence evidence-informed decision. And I wasn't entirely sure of the answer. So, Bobby, do you want to kind of review what that question is? Maybe we can ask the audience, our, our prestigious faculty, if they would get the answer correct. Yeah, I was in that session and having to review this with residents, and I was surprised about it too, uh, particularly about the strength of the evidence that the answer gave. Uh, It caught me completely off guard. Me too, me too. Uh, And I I felt like, as a pharmacist, I really should have known. Yeah. If there's strong evidence, why did I not know about this? It's kind of what I do. Absolutely. So here is the question. So it's a 43-year-old female who comes to your clinic for a routine health maintenance examination. She has a past medical history of diarrhea, predominant irritable bowel syndrome, recurrent urinary tract infections, and bacterial vaginosis. She has no new health concerns today. She does not take any medications on a regular basis and states that she prefers natural supplements to prescription medications. She says that she has heard that oral probiotics are beneficial and asks if they might be the right choice for her. Which one of the following is the best evidence-based approach to counseling about oral probiotics? 
A, there is no evidence that they will improve her IBS. B, there is no evidence that they will decrease the risk of C. difficile diarrhea when she is treated for a UTI. C, there is strong evidence that they will decrease the risk of antibiotic-associated diarrhea when she is treated for a UTI. D, there is strong evidence that they will decrease the risk of UTI recurrence. E, there is strong evidence that they will decrease the risk of bacterial vaginosis recurrence. And when I looked at this question, I was like, <laughs> it could be what? any of them. I know. <laughs> I, really I know. know. This is, yeah, this strong makes Strong evidence, that's such a strong word. Yeah, it's like really? either strong evidence or no evidence. Right. Uh, all of them were extreme, so it was uh, anxiety-provoking for me. Um, so why don't you tell us about what the correct answer was? Okay, so the, the correct answer, and correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's C. Yes, C. So repeat C for me, for everyone. Yeah, so there is strong evidence that they will decrease the risk of antibiotic-associated diarrhea when she is treated for a UTI. Correct. So answer C is based on a Cochrane review that specifically looked at probiotic use for the reducing the risk of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. However, the primary outcome of this was C. diff-associated diarrhea, and we are going to review that because I had not reviewed that yet. For the purposes of the podcast today, quite honestly, Bobby, we don't have time to go over the reasons why the other options were incorrect. The, the data with probiotics can be quite overwhelming for lots of different chronic conditions and specific um, diseases. So we are going to focus on C. diff-associated diarrhea, when you're taking antibiotics, and then in general, antibiotic-associated diarrhea only. Is that okay? Sounds good. Okay. Don, I'm going to ask you, what exactly are probiotics? Yeah, great question. So what exactly are probiotics? They're live organisms, bacteria or yeast, thought to improve the balance of organisms that populate the gut and to potentially counteract the imbalance of pathogenic bacteria when antibiotics are taken. These organisms are thought to be needed to maintain barrier qualities of the gut epithelium, inhibit pathogens' ability to bind to epithelial cells, and to help regulate the gut's immune system. According to a National Health Interview Survey in 2012, 4 million adults, get this, 1.6% and 300,000 children, 0.5% in the United States, said they had taken a probiotic within the past 30 days, making it the third most popular dietary supplement consumed. So this is certainly something we need to know about as clinicians. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are taking them and... I would be shocked if any more than a few percentage points of those people were actually told to take one by their doctor because I think in general, me included, doctors don't really feel comfortable with the evidence behind probiotics and whether to recommend them or not. Maybe I'm just not very well educated and I'm an outlier, but I feel like I'm probably not alone there in just not having a whole lot of confidence in saying, yeah, you should or should not be taking a probiotic. I agree. I agree. That's exactly my stance where I've seen some limited data, but nothing that's really changed my clinical practice. So more times than not, the patients come to me saying, oh, I've started this, is this good or bad? Or, and so we have to navigate that conversation. So Sandy, do you wanna tell us what's the proof? 
I will be happy to answer what's the proof, Dawn. Not really. <laughs> this was very, very difficult for me. I, I don't know how many of you enjoy reading Cochrane reviews. I am one of the nerds that do. But it's quite overwhelming. When you start looking at every study and you really get interested in the details of the study, then at about page 78, you feel like you have to just close it out and take a break and then go back to it. So I am going to try to do a quick and dirty summary for you guys on the first Cochrane review that was specifically referred to in the in-training um, answer. This is a 2017 review specifically looking at C. diff-associated diarrhea. There were 31 randomized control trials. 31, okay? How did I not know this, first of all? Um, over 8,600 participants, and these were adults and children. The majority of them were adults, however, and the vast majority of them were outpatient. Some of them were inpatient. You have to really go through the weeds to try to decide how many, so I'm not even going to give you the numbers on that, but 8,600 total. And in general, while they were all taking lots of different probiotics at lots of different doses, in general, it was somewhere between 14 to 17 days of taking the probiotic. And in general, the antibiotic was lasting about seven to 10 days. So we think about your typical antibiotic for a week, and then you continue the probiotic for another week is um, how most of these trials were designed. So here's the number. The incidence of C. diff-associated diarrhea when you took a probiotic while you were taking the antibiotic in the 8,600 participants was 1.5% in the probiotic group compared to 4% in the placebo or the no treatment control group. That is a relative risk reduction of 60%, and that was found to be statistically significant, very tight confidence intervals. The authors gave this a moderate grade of evidence, though, because the data relied heavily on five trials, out of the 31, five trials where the baseline risk of C. diff-associated diarrhea was greater than 15%. So these were your sicker, hospitalized, older patients. It makes sense that those are the patients that had a greater risk of 15% baseline. Now, when you stratified out, of course, as Cochrane's do, they do subgroup analyses a lot of them, okay? Whenever you stratify this out, they considered if your baseline risk was greater than 5%, that's a high-risk group. When they stratified those out, the incidence of C. diff-associated diarrhea in the probiotic group was 3.1% compared to 11.6% in the placebo group. And that was a 70% relative risk reduction, again, with very tight con confidence intervals. The confidence interval went from 0.21 to 0.42. And I know I'm one of the nerds that looks at these numbers, but that is extremely tight. Yeah. So in general, you would say in a high-risk person, there's a 70% relative risk reduction of C. diff-associated diarrhea. We all know that C. diff is bad right? None of us want to treat it. We know that it has to be treated aggressively. So this is something that was really impressive to me. And quite honestly, I was disappointed in myself that I didn't know that the data was this strong. Now, let me keep going. Again, they gave that a moderate grade because some of these trials do have a high risk of bias. It is very difficult in these supplement trials. And of course, there were so many different probiotics used in different routes and in different um, doses. So that's what makes it um, some of this very difficult. But for people that don't like relative risk, let me kind of put it in another way. For all patients taking probiotics while also taking antibiotics, 42 patients would need to take the probiotic to prevent one case of C. diff-associated diarrhea. That's in general. 
For patients at higher risk of C. diff associated diarrhea, only 12 patients would need to take the probiotic to prevent one case of C. diff associated diarrhea. So now, is that is that as, as impressive to you guys as it is to me? Yeah, for sure. That I, I had no clue that there was that level of evidence for something that I feel like I probably could have been doing all of this time. I, I agree, because we, we all have these terrible cases that we remember in the hospital of C. diff. Yeah. This is, this is not one day of watery stools yeah. that we're dealing with yeah. here. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and certainly C. diff is probably the most important outcome here, but you know, it, um, it also, the question, the in-training exam focused on antibiotic-associated diarrhea, and it did seem the Cochrane Correct. review really focus too much on that. Not that one. It did not. Yeah. So there is uh, one uh, pretty good randomized controlled trial that I found um, specifically looking at antibiotic associated diarrhea and the um, probiotics they use were lactobacillus acidophilus, uh, also along with lactobacillus casei. So right. two uh, probiotics in one. And this study uh, had 255 adults aged 50 to 70 years old and they were also hospitalized and had been in the hospital for at least five days mm-hmm. and had received either penicillin, acephalosporin, or clindamycin. And they looked at uh, two capsules versus placebo. Mm-hmm. So uh, two capsules, I think, twice a day. Um, and looking at the outcome of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So just not just C. diff, just right. did they have diarrhea related to the antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And... Compared to placebo, the group that received the two capsules of the probiotic had 15.5% uh, risk of having antibiotic-associated diarrhea compared to 44% in the placebo wow. group. So that's yeah. a number needed treat of three and a half. Right. So all of your patients that you're bringing in with um, pneumonia or whatever else that need antibiotics, and they're going to be there longer than five days, mm-hmm. every three and a half of those patients, you are preventing antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which I'm sure, you know, lengthens hospital stays, right. increases the cost of the hospital stay, they end up maybe getting tested for C. diff. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of things that downstream could potentially be prevented by something relatively simple. Right, right. Hence why, you know, answer C was correct, because this lady, the reference was that she had UTIs frequently, which means antibiotics. And, you know, in, in our organization, cephalosporins have kind of become the gold standard for UTIs now. Right. So you really think about that. That really is consistent with what this data is showing, that there is a dramatic improvement in the amount of antibiotic-associated diarrhea. Right. And you're on a cephalosporin. Yeah. Right. And, in, and also in terms of the duration of the di- diarrhea, it was 2.8 days in the probiotic group versus 6.4 days wow. in the placebo group. Yeah. That, to me, is is clinically significant as a patient. Yeah, pretty solid. Yeah, when you review this with a patient, I think, I think again, I'm a numbers gal, but if I were to hear this and I were getting ready to take a week of a cephalosporin for my UTI, that would be something that I would want to know. And, I, I, again, I really feel badly that I have kind of let this go until now. So kudos to the in-training yeah, question. Yeah, learn yeah. something. Exactly. So, uh, Dawn. What would you say then are the potential downsides? Because we always got to consider that when we look at any potential intervention. Yeah, that's a great question. We, 
you know, certainly always have to ask ourselves, is this is great, this is interesting information, probably should do this. And then we have to go, wait a minute, is there any harm in this? Is there any downsides? So most of the studies instructed patients to take probiotic for two weeks, which was usually seven days after the antibiotic was completed. So certainly taking more pills can be a hassle for some patients, that's a downside. Um, common adverse reactions in the trials were abdominal cramping, nausea, fever, soft stools, flatulence, and taste disturbance. But, you know, honestly, comparing that to many medications that we use, that seems pretty minimal. Um, so I guess that leads us to the question of, if I want to prescribe this, I need a pharmacist to tell me which probiotic I should be recommending. So Sandy, tell me, um, which probiotic should I use? Oh, Dawn, that is such an easy question, isn't it? Which one do I recommend? Yeah, try Googling that. There are thousands of probiotics available, and it is overwhelming, whether it's refrigerated, unrefrigerated, unrefrigerated, um, in yogurt form, in fermented drink form. I mean, it is, it is really, really overwhelming. And if you think that I'm going to give you a brand name of something to recommend, you are sorely mistaken. I just, I can't do it because I feel like they're just, I don't want to promote one particular one over the other. I want to go with what the data shows as best we have it. So here's what I, I feel pretty confident in, okay? In, in the one Cochrane review, they specifically looked at the amount of live cells or CFUs per day that were consumed. And they did find a statistically superior outcome for C. diff antibiotic di um, diarrhea when 10 to 50 CFUs were used per day. And most of the time when you look on, you know, on the bottle, you can see per capsule how many CFUs it's going to be. And usually it's somewhere between 5 and 10. So within that realm, taking two twice a day, three twice a day, I, I don't really know. They usually have on the bottle what their recommendation is, but it, if you can at least hit 10 CFUs, I feel good about that. Now, specifically, what type of bacteria are you going to recommend? And again, most of the data, they, they included all comers, but in general, the most popular and the one sh showing the best data was either the S. Bilardi or a combination of um, Lactobacillus acidophilus or the Lactobacillus casei. So again, just going with the data that I have, I can't really say negative things about all the other ingredients that are in the different capsules. But they have specifically looked at these three and recommend that in the Cochrane Review. So for me, whatever form you want to use, I feel like you should be fairly confident as long as it is in a high enough CFUs and contains these particular strains. That's what I'm going to go for. I know you want to. I know you just want me to cut to the chase and give you one name, and I'm just. I'm not. I'm not your gal for that. Yeah, I think what I'm going to do is go to, to the pharmacy and take this list of three. Yes. You know, names here, and just go look at bottles and pick. You know, a couple that are each. You know, type really that just kind of like sense. I do with with uh, you know birth control pills right. or all the different topical steroids, and I tell the residents you want to just pick one in each right. class. And what is your you know, local what you standard? Feel, <laughs> what do, <laughs> what your, do you, feel you know? This with? is when you can go to your specialist. You know, does your GI have a, a, a specific one? I do think you also need to look at cost. If you go on Amazon, you can find a ten dollar probiotic or a one hundred dollar probiotic. Yeah. 
it's very, very difficult. Do I think that you have to get the most, is the most expensive the best? I know. Let's don't do that. But is the middle of the road? I mean, I, I don't know. Sometimes it gets very, very difficult yeah. to, to know which one to pick. I will confess that in the past when patients have asked me which one to pick, I would hedge a little bit and say, yeah, you know, you usually kind of get what you pay for thing. And so, right. uh, and probably misled patients unintentionally into buying more expensive probiotics than they needed. But hopefully now I'll be more informed and, you know, our listeners will be too, and nobody will have to do that. I agree. I think that's smart. Okay. So as family doctors, we don't take care just of adults. We also take care yep. of kids. So yes, we do. And kids need antibiotics quite a lot. So is there any evidence about use of this in children to yes. prevent antibiotic-associated diarrhea? Yes, there is. And so this is going, you know, outside of what the in-training question was asking about the 43-year-old adult female. But I did find a 2019 Cochrane review that specifically looked at antibiotic-associated diarrhea in children. Again, a lot of trials, 33 studies, over 6,000 children between the ages of three days and 17 years. The majority of these children were treated outpatient. And just like in your study, Bobby, it was amoxicillin, cephalosporins, and then clindamycin kind of in that order with, you know, the beta-lactams being the, the big majority of the antibiotics. There were some kids that were hospitalized, but the majority of them were outpatient. The majority of them were also otherwise healthy children. And they were reporting diarrhea um, between five days and 12 weeks after a course of antibiotics. And, and honestly, the 12 weeks to me is a stretch. It's hard for me to say, okay, 12 weeks later, now you have a day of watery stools. Can I really blame the amoxicillin three months prior? But that is what, how the studies, that was the standard for the studies, was to go out to that. The way they defined moderate diarrhea was three or more watery stools in 24 hours, and then mild was one to two watery stools in 24 hours. So they really were looking at um, a, a good amount of diarrhea. So the probiotics used in this Cochrane review, again, the lactobacillus um, species, the streptococcus species, um, the Saccharomyces species, I mean, all kinds of species were allowed in the probiotic group. So again, when, I, when you're going to ask me what specifically should I recommend to children, I'm going to say there are a lot of studies that included a lot of different um, species. So here's the overall numbers, because again, it's pretty impressive. Antibiotic-associated diarrhea was 8% compared to 19% in those children that took the probiotic for the time that they were on the antibiotic and then for at least a week after. Okay, so that number needed to treat is just nine. So nine kids would have to take a probiotic um, for a couple of weeks in order to prevent one case of at least moderate or mild diarrhea. So that's pretty significant when you're talking to a parent, in, yeah. my, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how, I mean, how long it take me in clinic to get to nine kids that I prescribe antibiotics to. Right. It's not going to take very yeah. long. Now, I will tell you that, you know, there are a lot of studies that were at high risk of losing them to follow up. There were some biases, and the Cochrane Review does a fantastic job of adjusting for all of these biases, and they did still find a significant improvement. But when they took out 19 studies that had any significant loss to follow up, there was still a statistically significant improvement in the rates of diarrhea, but it wasn't as robust. That went from 12% in the probiotic group versus 19% in the um, 
placebo group. Now, when they further delineated high-dose versus low-dose probiotic, and they defined high-dose in children to be greater than 5 billion CFUs per day, so slightly lower dose than the C. diff, so we're talking 5 billion CFUs per day, when they compared specifically those studies, the data was, again, very robust. 8% incidence of diarrhea in the probiotic group versus 23% in placebo. Wow. I know. It's impressive. The antibi—or excuse me, the ADRs that are associated with the probiotics, very similar to what Dawn has already reviewed, some nausea, gas, flatulence, a little bit of abdominal bloating. It was defined as infrequent. You know, how much of this is related to the antibiotic? There's so many, the disease process, it's very difficult sure. sometimes to assess ADRs. But in general, I, I don't feel like we're being harmful to the child whenever we are giving a probiotic because diarrhea can be very problematic. We all know they can't go to school. We can't go to daycare. There's so many things that come with, with diarrhea. Yeah, and it's always fun to be able to tell people to take five billion of something. I know, <laughs> like five million, billion, whatever, whatever. It's a lot. Yeah, just look, look on the bottle. It's it's a lot. It's a big number. <laughs> now, I will have to say, and I'm going to admit to you that I did not specifically look up these observational studies, but in this Cochrane review, they wanted to make sure that there have been some serious side effects reported in observational studies in severely debilitated and immunocompromised children with underlying risk factors such as those with central venous catheters in long-term, disorders that are associated with already bacterial and fungal translocation. So I would not recommend it at this time in a very, very sick immunocompromised child. These are in your otherwise relatively healthy children that you're treating with otitis media, respiratory infections, et cetera, et cetera, with broad spectrum antibiotics. That is what I can feel confident with at this point. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So the big question at the end of the day, and I'll, I'm going to ask it, and then I'm going to answer it myself, and then I'm going to turn it over to Bobby, and then we're going to go to Dawn. How likely, based on this data, are you to recommend a probiotic to either a child or an adult who is also taking antibiotic? And I have to admit to you that I, I feel like, at the very least, it, it is a discussion that needs to be had with the patient or the parent or the, you know, whoever is, has that child there. C. diff is, is a big deal to me. And if I, myself, now were sick and needed to take an antibiotic, it is something that I would consider um, in general. I feel like it is safe. I feel that, that it is relatively affordable. And we're not talking about long-term probiotic use. I'm talking about taking something for two weeks. So for me, the recommendation is going to be yes, to at least suggest it and to try to remember some of these numbers to suggest to the patient or the parent. And I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, I got to say, I'm a lot more likely to prescribe it now compared to, you know, a couple weeks ago. I mean, look at these number needed treat numbers of 42 for adults, nine to probably 12 12. or so Mm -hmm. in kids. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's better than statins for Mm -hmm. uh, secondary prevention, right? Right. So, I mean, that, and it's, there's some flaws in the study, but, you know, when you consider that along with potential harms, which seem to be very low, potential benefits seem to be pretty great, especially when it comes to C. diff prevention. Yes. Uh, It's going to take a lot, I think, to make this not part of my routine standard practice at this point. 
Well, I, I'm glad that we forced ourselves to go through it then, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to try to be teaching all the residents uh, about it too. So, Don, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I really want to disagree just to, for conversation's sake, but I do go agree. Ahead, disagree <laughs> if you want. Do it. I mean, it's hard to disagree with this data. And then, like, like you said, the number needed to treat. And I think the biggest thing, too, um, my bias, because I've seen children sick in the hospital with C. diff, I've seen adults sick, you know, certainly we bring that bias as well. But the data does support it. And I think I'm going to have to change my clinical practice. So I, thanks for going through all this with me. Yeah, and, and you all listening, uh, if you have an opinion, what, tell us what you think. Shoot us a tweet on Twitter or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but we're going to shift gears now to Residents Ask the Darndest Things. Okay, Dawn, so you had a medical student, actually, not a resident this time, ask you a question in clinic recently, correct? Yeah, so we were seeing patients together, and I had an eight-year-old healthy female come in with a viral illness. We actually did out, did a car visit, and before I saw the patient, my assistant that day, who typically works with another provider, had already done a COVID and a flu swab, and... Um, she had given me the results and the patient was positive for flu. And the medical student asked me, oh, do you always swab all patients with viral symptoms for COVID and flu? And I said, I, that's a great question. Um, let me find the answer to that. It, because, you know, what we did before COVID and what we do now after COVID can, it, it looks different. Um, so yeah, so I was, not sure how to answer her question. Uh, I told her what I have done historically, and then I went to look for an answer, which was not easy to find. Um, so I like it whenever they ask a question, I can show them exactly what point of care resource I used so that they can find it in the future. And then it's, you know, done. But this was not that kind of question, unfortunately. So I first went to uh, our point of care resources that we use in clinic. Um, and really couldn't find an answer. Kind of what's our standard? Is there any data to support co-testing? Um, and then, then I went to Google and said CDC NIH guidelines, infectious disease guidelines, and I actually did find some information that I could share with my medical student so I wasn't empty-handed. And I'll go through that with you if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so what I found was lots of strong to moderate recommendations, but all based on expert opinion. And that's not surprising, right? Because that's kind of what we've been dealing with in COVID um, because of time and other restrictions. Um, so basically the things that I went through with a medical student and things that the NIH and CDC had put in their documents was the signs and symptoms of uncomplicated clinically mild influenza overlap with those of mild COVID. And even though I really didn't pay attention before, um, it's documented that loss of taste and smell can occur with flu. Um, so you can't really rely on that. Even though it is more common with COVID, you can't really rely on that. So really, because we have limited data, um, the experts are saying, hey, just like before COVID, if you highly suspect it, it's going to change your management, yes, co-test. Um, saying that, I think a lot of times patients 
really push us to test because their work or the daycare is asking, what is this? Is this COVID or not? Is this flu or not? So I think sometimes we test it, even though it's not going to necessarily make our patients healthier um, or decrease hospitalization necessarily, we are pushed to do this right or wrong. Um, there is a price tag to that though. I actually asked my lab out of pocket, our test for just flu um, is $49. Um, but a lot of patients would say it was worth it to them to know how to isolate their family, how to talk to their contacts. So I don't know, I, I guess the point in sharing this is to show that, yeah, sometimes medical students and residents are gonna ask us things that there's just not a great answer for and we have to use our clinical judgment and we have to look at each clinical scenario and each family and just do our best. Um, and then, you know, I could show her this data and say, hey, here's expert opinion data. I don't have any studies. And that's that's okay. Yeah, I think um, you're never going to have a whole lot of studies that are going to just tell you who to test and who not to. Um, but I think there are some things that you can, you know, use in an evidence-based approach and how you go about testing. So you think about pre-test probability. You know, in general, when you do any test, you really shouldn't do it if the pretest probability is low, which is generally considered less than 10%, or if it's really high, you know, greater than 90%, um, because the test isn't going to help you in that situation. If it's, you know, positive, but the pretest you know, probability is low, then it's going to be still doubtful whether it's a true positive or not. Likewise, if it's negative, but your pretest probability is super high, so like you have a patient that lives with two other people that have flu and they come in and they get tested and it's negative, you're just not going to believe it if they have classic symptoms. So, you know, I, I guess in the student situation, I would point out, well, we don't always use absolute terms like always and with all patients. So you need to consider that. Um, but in general, you know, that pretest probability is going to vary. So it, it's going to vary somewhat on the prevalence of what's going on. So like when you test for influenza, you know, in July versus when you're going to test it in January, February, you know, it's probably a lot different because the pretest probability changes a lot over that time. So uh, those are the things you got to think about. Um, people generally aren't going to know sensitivity, specificity in terms of statistics, but you might know um just ballpark figures and then but the real question is positive predictive value negative predictive value which are going to vary with prevalence too so um but you're right in general you know that's just a judgment call yeah and the reason you know it's interesting this didn't come up until may this question right yeah. because really this kind of little uptick in flu and now covid cases we've really been focused on covid because the prevalence pretest probability was so low yeah but then it's kind of upticked a little bit, and now that's back on our radar. Should we be now, you know, it's a pretest probability higher. So with this particular case, she did live with her grandmother. They were really happy to have the information. It yeah. was fine. They had insurance to cover the test. All was well. But it was still interesting to kind of walk through that with the medical student. Yeah, this is good exercise, too. You know, that's what great thing about teaching is, is that they keep you sharp. They ask you these questions that you – sometimes don't know the answer to and you have to look them up and and you learn and you both of you get better because of it so well thank you don yeah and that's going to wrap up our show today thank you very much for listening if you enjoyed the podcast please leave a review and hit that subscribe follow button in your podcast app of choice 
For any questions or comments about today's episode, drop us an email at whatstheproofpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.